0: All right, so I want to take a few seconds here to voice my support for Black Lives Matter. This is a crucially important time in this country's history in relationship to race relations and how people of color are treated. Please check out the section that I've made available on my podcast website called Black Voices Matter. You can find it on my website at readwritegeek.podbean.com and also on my author website, emarierobertson.com. That's going to be a list of podcasts that are helpful for white folks who want to be allies without being dumbasses, and also to kind of showcase some people of color who are doing some fantastic work in the podcasting community. So again, please check that out. It's on my website, emeryrobertson.com and also on my podcast website, readwritegeek.podbean.com, under the hashtag Black Lives Matter. Thanks. Hey, I'm Emarie Robertson. I'm your host for Read Write Geek, a podcast for writers, readers, and makers of all kinds. Welcome aboard! Episode 7 Chapter 13 It takes a few days to finish pulling together the team I want and to develop a plan— I am certain of one thing. Everyone in this group wants passionately to find out the truth about what happened, and none of them bears an excess of good or ill will toward the company, although most of them view it with a mildly distrusting eye. They'll consider anything we learn honestly and provide what I hope will be a multifaceted perspective. And they're all trustworthy, helpful, collaborative, and smart. Although, really, they'd have to be. There isn't any other kind of person on Iona. We always have to work together to get by, and we're always ready to help wherever we're needed. I let Graham know I've completed the team and that we're ready for the security chief's visit to Iona. He grumbles when I tell him the names of the team members during a private headset chat, and although he offers no comments about their identities, he doesn't exactly sound pleased with the composition of the group. It might only be my imagination, but he seems particularly annoyed when I mention Arden's name and makes an audible (laughs) into my ear. Any feedback? I ask in response, but he defers. If you think these are the people who can get the job done, then I'll just have to trust you, he says, unconvincingly. I'm assuming you'll bring on specialists in a flex capacity? Well, we don't actually know what our real job is yet, I point out. We won't know until we meet with the security chief and understand our charge. You can consider this group a baseline. I'll evolve it as necessary, depending on what we're expected to do. I see. His voice has already shifted to disinterest. Good enough. Well, thank you for your effort. And with that, he logs off. The dead air that follows feels warmer than the conversation we just had. I tell myself it's not such a surprise. He's under a lot of pressure, and this was a conversation with a specific purpose, not anything personal. Every moment can't be read as an opportunity to reestablish your friendship, I think. But my own rationalizing leaves me feeling hollow. I can't even say I miss him. The person he's been since the accident is not the same person he was before, not the person I went on all those long walks with and curled up against in the star parlor, comfortable in shared silence and conversation. I tap out of Graham's private channel with a sigh and log back into General. I'm still on medical leave, even though I feel perfectly fine and have said as much to Mata, but she will not be moved. At least, she no longer attacks me if she finds me listening to the General channel. The chatter about ongoing tasks and work getting done is soothing to me, and occasionally I take an opportunity to answer a question or participate in a bit of banter with Fanny or Tomas. Fanny provides updates to me about Polly's condition, and Tomas is always good for comic relief, oftentimes unintentionally. Only seconds after I establish connection with General, Fanny hails me. I have a rest day today, she says. Can I come by? Her voice is tense and anxious. It's obvious something is wrong. Of course, it'll be great to see you, I say. Are you sure you want to come here? We could have lunch in the Star Parlor. "Uh, No, I feel like taking a little walk, so I'll come see you, she says quickly. I'm ready now. I'll head that way in a few. Okay, then. See you soon, I respond. But Fanny has already left the General Connection. I feel like taking a little walk? When has Fanny ever felt like taking a walk? This clearly isn't an ordinary visit to chit-chat. I'm in the kitchen making tea for us when she arrives on a sand scooter. I hug her and hand her a steaming cup as she comes inside. We walk into the quiet common room and she sits down in one of the overstuffed chairs next to the fireplace. I sit down across from her. She shakes her head and lets out a long exhale, staring at the flames with concentration. Her fingers tighten and flex on the cup handle. Her normally even-toned complexion is stained with pink. Her mouth is set in a firm line, and her jaw is clenched tight. Fanny isn't anxious. She's furious. "'Tell me what's wrong,' I say. She takes a long sip of the tea, staring into the fire, and says to me in a voice bordering on the edge of disgust, "'He's taken Polly's room.'" "'What?' I'm completely taken aback. "'Who? For what?' "'Ram,' she responds in a steely tone, setting her teacup down on the small table next to the chair with a thump. "'He moved Polly's things out of it yesterday and sent them to storage, all of them. He didn't say a word to me or mention it to the rest of the pod. We came in from shift and it was done.' "'Why would he do that?' "'I can understand wanting to encourage everyone to somehow accept what's happened to Polly with some kind of physical representation, but this seems extreme and counterproductive.' "'Fanny's teeth are clenched together as she can barely get out the words.' He's giving it to the company security officer. The security chief is staying here? For one knee-jerk reactive moment, I become anxious and afraid. I had assumed the company would place an Enviro in low orbit around Iona to serve as accommodations for the security chief, as is usually standard for their VIPs who venture out to other worlds. The enviros provide a level of comfort and convenience that's much closer to what someone from home world would expect, far beyond what we can provide even in specially set-up guest quarters. It never occurred to me that the security chief would need, or want, to stay on Iona, much less in one of our residential pods. I'm still listening to Fanny, but my mind is spinning question after question in my subconscious. After eight years, am I still that afraid of the company? It's bad enough that some company lackey is coming here at all, that we have to be under this kind of scrutiny, Fanny's face contorts as she continues to speak. But to have them lounging around in Polly's room and he just packed up every single thing and sent it to storage. He didn't even ask. The anger breaks and sorrow floods her features. Her eyes fill with tears. She clamps her hand over her mouth, battling her emotions. I put down my tea and reach over to wrap my arms around her. Her body shakes with frustration. He's making us miserable, she says, finally sobbing. I wish he'd never come here. Fanny, don't, I say, hugging her tight. I know these tears are more about Polly than Graham's misstep, but her words highlight what I think is the crux of the problem. Graham hasn't been himself since the accident. That did something to him, and this visit from the company is causing him a lot of stress. He's reliving everything that went wrong on Bartizel. Taking over Polly's room like that was ridiculous, but it was just the mistake of someone under a lot of pressure trying to accommodate another demand from the company. He's your pod leader for now, and don't forget he's also one of the only people who might be able to help us sort out how to deal with the effects of blue. This last statement catches Fanny off guard. She sits back, disentangling herself from my embrace. She runs her hand over her face, wiping away the tear tracks. Her shoulders droop as she looks down at the floor. I know you're right, she says, picking up her teacup again and running a finger around its rim. But I can't help how I feel. This was the last straw there's more? Fanny sighs. Huh, there's a lot more. The tale she next tells of Graham confirms what I've seen myself. The friendly, easy-going, caring man whom we welcomed to Iona a few short months ago has transformed into a perpetually irritated loner who speaks only to give an order or to answer a direct question, and sometimes not even then. He hates being pod leader, you know, I murmur. I can well believe it, Fanny says, sighing heavily and staring into her teacup. I think he hates all of us, and Iona. Oh, I don't think that's true, I say, shaking my head. He might not love Iona, but he was adjusting well, and he seemed to be settling in. The fire crackles softly in the grate. Fanny presses her lips together tightly for a moment. When she speaks, it's in a soft and measured tone, and I know she's worried that she's about to hurt my feelings. I, I have to wonder if the old Graham, the one we thought we knew, was all an act to get us to accept him she says. And if the man we see now is the real Graham Thorne. I consider this. I saw for myself how quickly he could flip between his governor persona when he felt attacked and the person he was when he was relaxed. And although I wasn't in love with Graham, I cared about him enough to let him gain my trust. His actions have not been those of someone who thought little of Iona or of its people. Fanny reaches over and takes my hand. I'm sorry, she says, looking hard at me. I, n- I know you care for him and that the two of you seem to have found something together. I don't mean to suggest that that was all predicated on a lie or on something that wasn't real. No, it's all right, I tell my friend. It might have become something in time, but it never really got to that point. Things have become very confusing for everyone lately. By everyone, I mean mainly me, but I don't bother to say it. So what did Tomas have to say? Which Graham did he know on Bartizel? Fanny's lips turn down in irritation. For someone who can't shut up otherwise, he seems to have precious little to say about Graham, she says. I can't get him to say anything. I mean, I understand he was very late arriving on Bardizel and he'd only been on World for six weeks or so when the transfer happened, but he's remarkably opinion-free when it comes to the governor. He doesn't want to talk about him at all. In the end, there's little I can say to offset Fanny's concerns. I wish I could do something to help, I say, but Fanny waves her hand at me. I'm just venting my misery. I know you can't do anything about any of this, she says, her face fallen with despair. I know he was a big part of saving Polly's life. He wouldn't have done that if he hated us. It's just that a lot has changed in such a short time. It's tough to get my head around it all. I know what she means. Just then, as if by magic, my headset buzzes with a private hail. I open the channel, and to my surprise, hear Matcha say, someone here has a message for you immediately followed by Arden, who is so excited he is almost shouting. "'I'm being discharged,' he says, his voice bubbling with delight. "'Are you at the pod? I'll be there in a couple of hours.'" Nothing makes the point about the force of Arden's personality like having him back in the pod after an extended absence. No welcome home party is necessary. Arden is the party. Podmates are hugged again and again and complimented fiercely for their bravery, intelligence, beauty, and good health. We're regaled with multiple observations of how much easier it is to eat, drink, sleep, laugh, belch in our presence than in the cold, sterile torture that is clinical. Our common room, already a more pleasant space since my own return, becomes nothing short of celebratory all day, every day. Arden even compliments the room itself, reflecting on the warmth of the fire, the quality of the light, the perfection of the acoustics, the soothing effect of the colors and the decor and the furnishings. His hammock is the most comfortable thing ever devised. The sound of his roommate snoring is a calming sedative. The echo of the rising chimes across the pod is charmingly energizing. He's delighted by everything. We're both still on medical leave, so after our podmates head off each day for their work tasks or schooling, we're left in each other's company. I sneak away several days in a row to work on my project, since Arden is still a little weak and needs more sleep than I do. But when he's feeling well, we come together to walk, to talk, and to try to make up for eight years of silence and separation. I tell him about my new skill sets in rocketry, maintenance, and automated control design, all things I've learned on Iona. He tells me about skullduggery, transporting dangerous and sometimes contraband materials for the company, and working as a sort of double agent to intercept both company and independent transports that were a little too willing to bend the rules. It's funny to look at the differences side by side. I've spent the last eight years down in the pit alone in the dark, being as quiet and steady and under the radar as possible, while Arden has spent them in dramatic, risky, high-profile positions, generally drawing as much attention to himself as possible. I told you I was a space pirate, he says. Well, tell me how you know Graham, I ask him one afternoon. It's quite the coincidence that the two of you would wind up on Iona when neither of you ever intended to come here. For just a moment, Arden blanches. Well... That's a long story, he says, and only half of it is mine to tell. The short version is we worked together on the same ship for a few months and we got to know each other pretty well, and we stayed in touch after we weren't on the same ship anymore for maybe a year, but I eventually lost track of him. Was he a space pirate too, I ask. Arden laughs aloud. (laughs) I have never known a less space piratey person, he says. No, our friend Graham is a straight arrow, about as straight as they come. That's one of the things I liked about him. There are a lot of bullshit artists out there. He's the opposite. It can be a blessing or it can be a huge curse. I think he's found it to be both at different times in his life. I consider this carefully for a moment. Maybe Fanny is overreacting. Maybe we're all judging Graham too harshly or expecting too much from him. I wonder about the curse aspect of being honest to a fault and how that might play out in the coming days. But Arden interrupts my contemplation by asking a random question about skiff maintenance and just like that we're off on another conversational tangent. He seems so happy here, I think I don't even wonder whether I have a role in his joy. I find Arden a few nights later in our courtyard, sitting on one of the curved benches built into its low wall, and staring up at Iona's little moons with a small smile on his lips. It's late, and our pot is mostly turned in. Hen is still puttering around in the kitchen, and I can hear the soft sound of Char's dulcimer, but Iona town itself is so silent it almost feels like we're completely alone. What are you up to now, I asked from the doorway. He doesn't take his eyes from the sky, but the smile spreads across his face at the sound of my voice. I think about the many evenings we spent on Homeworld, sitting out in our pod's garden in the dark, just being still together and watching the sky. So much has changed, but so much feels just the same. Meteors, he says without looking at me, and pats the smooth plaster textured bench next to him. Come sit. I scoff for a moment. We don't get meteors here, I say. This is some kind of trick. No trick. Meteors, he insists. Sit. I'll show you. I walk across the courtyard and sit beside him. He wraps one arm around my shoulders and angles me against him just so, then points up into the north. I relax against him, letting the warmth of his touch and our familiarity with one another wash over me. Look there, he says. Keep watching. The sky is clear and the breeze is light tonight, for Iona, anyway. It's our good fortune that's out of the south, As I continue to gaze up into the black, I hear the patter of sand blowing against the courtyard wall instead of feeling it blowing into my eyes. I don't see any meteors, I say. Arden shushes me. You're too impatient, he says. Give it time. You'll see one any minute. I smirk. I'm too impatient, says the man who cured a pandemic with a sledgehammer. His arm, now comfortably settled around my shoulders, tightens gently at the mention of our former life together, pulling me a fraction closer. He still does not look away from the sky as I lean into him, staring up at the darkness above. That was a matter of efficiency, he says easily. I like to get every job done as thoroughly as possible. You have always been very thorough, I will give you that. He lets the double entendre sink in, and we snort in unison. Suddenly he points upward. Look there, he says, a note of triumph in his voice. See it? I do. A flash of light over the hills to the north, blazing a sparkling trail through the sky, then gradually dying as it falls into the horizon. Almost immediately, another bursts through the darkness and follows a similar path. Wow, I've never seen meteors here before, I say. Have you looked for them? Oh, well, no. You don't find what you don't look for. His statement feels serious and heavy in the context of everything that's happened on Iona. It's true that I trust Arden with my life, but I'm also aware that he's still full of secrets. The mysterious company job, the contentious conversation I overheard in clinical, these things continue to draw my attention like a pebble in my shoe. There are many things I've made a point not to look for when it comes to Arden. In one sense, it's none of my business, but in another, it could have everything to do with how life on Iona continues to develop. I tell myself I need to stop being afraid of what I might find if I do look. But Arden has taken up the narrative again. That's not quite right, though, is it? What? I'm so distracted by my own thoughts, I've lost the thread. It's not quite true that we don't find what we don't look for. Sometimes we do, despite ourselves. I look at him now, questioning. He still stares up at the sky, but his expression has become philosophical. Are you talking about yourself? I ask. I am. And what is it you found you weren't looking for? Oh, so much, he replies. Friends? Family? Family? Home. On Iona? On Iona. He looks away from the stars at last and into my eyes. I thought this was going to be a terrible assignment. A service planet. Warehousing. I I never expected to love my life here, he says, and I never expected... I could never have guessed. His hand strokes my cheek as his voice trails away, and for the first time since his arrival, I see some trepidation nervousness he doesn't have to finish the sentence i place my hand over his and turn my face to kiss his palm then look into his eyes and say me either but here we are entranced by the moment i close my eyes as he lowers his face to mine i feel the gentle pressure of his lips first on my forehead then on my cheek my heart is pounding as he hesitates suddenly we're interrupted by a blindingly bright flash of light and the scream of engines breaking into Iona's atmosphere. We both startle at the sound and peer upward blinking at the massive brightly lit company transport vehicle streaking across the sky toward the landing pads. We disentangle from one another and stand to watch the spectacle. All over Iona town, headsets are going off, pods are lighting up, and people are hurrying toward the pads in the darkness. With an anxious sigh. Arden pulls me into his arms again and can only be described as a protective gesture. His tension shows in his posture and breathing. We're again on the same wavelength, sharing an emotional response, but this time it's an unshakable unease compounded by deja vu. Looks like the security chief has arrived, he says quietly. Time to face the music. Chapter 14 The security chief's name is Fallon March. I have heard her name before. She has a reputation within the company as something of a wonderkind. Even though she started out as a chemist in materials analysis, she progressed rapidly through that division's structure and was soon managing all of Homeworld's labs. When she moved over to operations security, she was named chief after less than a year. She's only two years older than me, and like me, she grew up on Homeworld as the child of scientific researchers— But here she is, now a top company official, sitting before us in a crisp burgundy jumpsuit, tapping her long manicured nails against the tabletop with barely concealed impatience. And here I am, sitting in the back in my mostly clean beige service togs, with grease ingrained in my cuticles and a series of red, angry bug bites across my cheek. Despite her late-night arrival, March let it be known that she intended to address Iona at the crack of dawn, and now bleary-eyed Ionians are attempting to pack into the presentation theater. Our population won't fit into this space since the arrival of the former Bartizellians, so there's a fair amount of disorder as people cram in and sit or stand anywhere they can find a spot. Meanwhile, March's presence on the stage is that of an alabaster statue, all white and pale gold except for the jumpsuit and the matching burgundy on her lips. Her assistant, a younger, almost matching copy of March except for the pale peach outfit and lipstick, sits on March's right and leans in anxiously from time to time, taking notes on a holo-tablet. "'On her left, looking as dour as I've ever seen him, is Graham. "'He has a few old-fashioned note cards in his hands, "'which he occasionally shuffles through. "'Periodically, he leans toward March and speaks, "'but there's no indication she's listening to anything he says. "'I stare down at my hands and self-consciously rub my sleeve against my cuticles "'until Arden's hand reaches over and gives mine a gentle squeeze.' We're sitting in the middle of a row toward the back of the theater, working at being relatively inconspicuous despite the steady stream of Ionians who stop to wave at us and make comments either about my heroism or Arden's recovery. Fanny and Wenda are positioned just behind the audio console at the foot of the stage. Matcha's high-piled jet-black crown of braids is visible over the crowd a few rows away to our right. Holly, Hen, and Bennett have disappeared into the crowd despite coming in just behind us. One thing is clear. Our station must be at a complete standstill with nearly every adult Ionian in this theater per March's demand. I can't imagine what she'll have to say that will make this feel like anything other than some kind of performance designed to intimidate us with company power and importance. Graham is speaking to March again, this time more insistently. She turns to regard him the way an Ionian entomologist might look at yet another sand flea, and her expression shifts from impassive to vaguely dissatisfied. Her burgundy lips curve into a frown as she turns away from Graham and proceeds to give her assistant a stream of instructions, which the girl frantically struggles to note down. Worst job imaginable, I mutter, gesturing toward the stricken assistant. Arden hears me and smirks behind his hand. She probably won't last long, he whispers. Everyone says March is a beast to work for. It's definitely not a job with growth potential. Did you run into her during any of your company assignments, I ask. Arden has yet to explain what he was doing for the company, although I know he was a pilot and later ran what was ostensibly a materials transport team. Arden shakes his head. I knew of her, certainly, everyone in the company did, but this is my first time seeing her in person. What do you think? She appears to be very clean, Arden says with a laugh. Well, that will change after a couple of days, I say. I'm sure Polly's pod isn't any cleaner than ours. Before Arden can reply, Graham stands and walks to the front of the stage. He looks over at Wenda, who gives him a smile and a thumbs up while Fanny glares at him coldly, then takes a deep breath and begins to speak. "'Thank you, everyone, for being here,' he says in a weary voice. "'We'll try to make this fairly quick so you can get on with your day. I want to introduce Fallon March, the company's operations security chief. As you all know, we suffered a terrible accident in warehousing that caused some severe injuries and easily could have been much more serious if not for some quick thinking.' Graham pauses here and appears to briefly scan the crowd for me, but the moment is so short, I can't be certain. Quick thinking and heroics, whispers Arden, and I elbow him sharply. Chief March will be conducting an investigation into the accident to help us understand what happened and how we might prevent such accidents in the future, Graham continues. So for that consideration, we owe her and the company a debt of gratitude. Uh, Please help me welcome Company Operations Security Chief Fallon March. There is an unenthusiastic patter of applause from the crowd as March rises and comes forward. She looks out at the assembly for a beat too long, and I realize she is anxious, although her features belie this not at all. Good morning, she finally says, in a voice as cool and pale as her features. I want to echo what Governor Thorne has said. I'm here at the behest of the company, to be sure, but my goal is to help all of you. By understanding and addressing any issues that might have contributed to the accident, we will be able to assure Iona is applying the highest and best safety standards in the sector, and such a reputation can only lead to good. The company has long been an enthusiastic and happy customer of this station, with nothing but good to report, and we relish this opportunity to give back to you in this way. I can feel the look on my face shifting from incredulity to fury. Is she kidding? I hiss to Arden, and he squeezes my hand a little more emphatically and whispers back, Take it easy. Chief March continues to speak about how delighted she is to be working on this important task and how pleased she is to have this opportunity to get to know Iona in a deeply personal way, all without looking delighted or pleased in the slightest. She makes some overture about being one of you, but I'm already so angry I've stopped listening. We're being set up, I whisper to Arden. Then you've got some work to do, he whispers back. It dawns on me that I'm the person who will be dealing with her, with this narrative for the days, weeks, or however long it takes to get to the bottom of what happened. And I understand the company may in fact have no interest whatsoever in this as long as they can at least cast some blame on Iona and then, quote, help us, quote, improve to, quote, overcome whatever the, quote, problem might be. The address lasts only a few more minutes and concludes with the usual insincere encouragement for Ionians to get involved by offering up any relevant information or concerns to either Governor Thorne or any member of the newly formed task force. Finally, March looks expectantly at Graham, who comes forward again to stand next to her and echoes her closing sentiment. At last, we're dismissed, and hundreds of grumbling Ionians make their way out to their day's work assignments. Arden and I, who are still technically on medical leave, head back to the pod. Am I just paranoid, or did that seem insidious? I ask as we stride across the sand. Which part of it, Arden asks, for once not joking. "'I'm wondering if we've been set up by more people than the company. "'I mean, I was specifically asked to put together this task force. "'Ah, my old friend Governor Thorne. "'Don't call him that. I don't know why she kept calling him that. "'He's not the governor here.' Arden shrugs. "'There were plenty of things in those remarks I found insidious, "'but that wasn't one of them. "'You don't know,' I start to say. "'Then recall there's actually a lot I don't know about Arden and Graham, "'and that Arden doesn't know about Graham and me.' Yet it seems petty and insignificant to worry about this now. Maybe I am just being paranoid, I finish. I think you're being realistic based on your experience, but you need to keep an as open a mind as possible, Arden says. We haven't started the investigation yet, although we know at least part of the narrative she's trying to put out there isn't accurate. and We don't know why that's the story they're spinning. Understanding the why may be the most important piece of the puzzle." We turn onto the path toward the pod and walk along in silence as I contemplate what Arden has said. I've always been more of a yes-or-no kind of girl. My early life was a series of clear, obvious decisions. Then the waning happened, and I chose the path of making no decisions for a long time, instead letting life wash over me, through me, almost without leaving a mark. Now it seems nothing is clear or obvious anymore. As we cross into the courtyard, I turn toward Arden. That's it, then, I say. We'll put the team members onto the specifics of the investigation— but you and I will look for the why. For all her haste in getting herself in front of Iona, Fallon is rather less speedy about meeting with her investigation team. Three full days after our Dawn introduction to her, no word has come down regarding meetings, goals, organization, nothing. I'm not sure if this is due to March's own lack of enthusiasm, Graham's general displeasure with the composition of my team, or the persistent notion I have that the company has already reached a conclusion and plan of action that requires no investigation. The latter, of course, is my bet, despite Arden's repeated attempts to dissuade me. I hear from Fanny that March, ensconced in Polly's room, much to the disgust of the entire pod, has not set about getting to know Ionians in a deeply personal way, but instead seems to be concentrating on avoiding them as much as possible. The security chief spends most of her time hunkered down in Polly's office at intake, frequently badgering Graham over record-keeping or historical data, and even taking her meals there. She only returns to the pot at lights out to retreat to Polly's room without speaking to or interacting with anyone. Her assistant, who was not included on the visit manifest and so arrived to no planned accommodations, spent one night sleeping in a bed in clinical and then was packed onto a visiting skiff and shuttled off Iona the next day. By the time day four rolls around, I decide I've had enough. "'I wake before the rising chimes and scour myself in the shower until I'm almost raw. "'I wrangle my hair into submission put on a clean set of service wear "'with my credentials displayed from a colorful lanyard at my waist. "'When I look into the mirror, I feel a bit deflated. "'I still look like myself, although with a little more care applied. "'My brown hair is twisted up into a relatively neat pile atop my head "'instead of stuffed under a hat or contained in a messy bun.' My skin is clean and fresh, scrubbed. But compared with the image of March in her sharp burgundy fashion, with her attention-catching burgundy lips and crisp pale blonde bob, I feel like a mouse about to go toe to toe with a lioness. She'll just underestimate you, I say to my reflection. It's an advantage. Fortunately, my reflection doesn't argue. I pop on my headset and set out for intake. If Fanny's right, March will be there. When I arrive, intake is quiet and appears empty, but the doors are unlocked and I can see the light from Polly's office casting a cool white sparkle on the tile hallway floor. I can also hear March's voice echoing loudly down the hall, terse and irritated. I freeze, in part because I don't want to interrupt, but also in part because I desperately want to eavesdrop. I don't care what you think would make the best presentation, March snaps. I'm here to do a job, not make friends. It will only take longer. A pause. She's listening to a reply I can't hear, which means she's either on headset or she's using a holo tablet set to private mode. Whatever the second party says chastens her. She listens quietly for nearly a full minute. When she speaks, her response is measured, almost cowed. I suppose so, she says, but he is here. I've confirmed it. Another pause. No, I don't believe that's going to be an issue. Her tone becomes more defeated with every word. Another pause, this one shorter. Of course, I'll be in touch. The conversation ends. I hear her sigh and the sound of fingernails drumming against Polly's marble top desk, followed by a frustrated expletive. I wait until I feel like I won't be accused of spying, then make it a point to walk noisily toward the office, calling out, Hello? Chief March? The drumming stops immediately, and I hear a desk drawer quickly open and close as March calls out, Who's there? "'I'm Faith Feathergrass. I'm hoping we can set up a meeting,' I say as I round the corner and step into the doorway. But the words freeze in my mouth at what I see. Fallon marches behind Polly's desk, but she's not sitting down. Instead, she's standing in a defensive crouch, training an impressive and extremely deadly-looking firearm on me. Instinctively, I throw up both hands, palms facing her, but my anger erodes rationality. "'What the hell are you doing?' I shout. "'Put that thing down!' March blinks in obvious confusion. I'm not sure whether it's over the fact I'm clearly not the threat she anticipated or from being given direct order by a mousy stranger in dumpy beige clothes. Either way, she slowly lowers the weapon and her posture begins to relax. She abandons the defensive crouch in favor of a sort of tense uprightness, an improvement in that she no longer appears to be prepared to murder me on the spot. She finally drops the weapon onto the desk unceremoniously and smooths her hair. The steel-blue eyes rake over me in frank assessment, and her lips twitch in irritation. "'Who are you again?' she asks. Her tone has regained its icy imperiousness. "'I'm your investigation team lead,' I say, taking a full step into the office and crossing my arms confrontationally across my chest. "'My name, again, is Faith Feathergrass.' I look pointedly at the firearm. "'Who exactly were you expecting?' She chews her lip before answering me, still assessing. I am merely trying to guarantee my personal safety, she says. I never know what kind of reception I'm likely to receive when I visit these backwater planets. Her lips curl in distaste as she gestures around her. I suppose I'm supposed to be insulted, and I am, but it's going to take more than that to diffuse my ire. At this point, it seems we might need to be more concerned about you than you do about us, I say, leveling my gaze at her. "'You know, you could just keep the door locked.' She makes an exasperated sound. "'That would send entirely the wrong message.' "'Well, what kind of message do you think that sends?' I ask, looking down at the weapon now lying on the desktop with no more thought given to its disposition than an abandoned scrap of wire. She mutters something under her breath, but finally sits down behind the desk with almost regal precision. She opens a drawer and slides the weapon into it. When she speaks, her voice is steady and devoid of any emotion.' Do have a seat, Miss Feathergrass, was it? And please, just get to the point, whatever it might be. I pull out one of the chairs and sit down gingerly, still keeping my eyes locked on her. My own posture mirrors hers, rigid, upright, formal. I had wanted things to get off on a positive, if not entirely friendly note, but it seems there will be no recovering that now. I'm your investigative team lead, I say, and wait for some acknowledgement or recognition. There is none. I was charged with forming the team to assist you in your investigation of the incident at warehousing? I prod. This finally rings a bell for her. Oh, yes, Governor Thorne mentioned that. I cringe internally at her use of the honorific. Graham led me to believe we would be conducting an investigation and reporting to you, so some kind of structure would be useful. I put a little extra emphasis on Graham's given name. Do you plan to give us some kind of charge or process outline? Something to help us understand what you expect from us? March lets out another put-upon sigh. If you're supposed to be investigating, go ahead and investigate, she says tersely. I'm not doing anything to stop you. Her fingernails began their annoyed pattern on the desktop again. Her eyebrows are arched at me in a challenge. I think to myself, challenge accepted. I'm happy to. I say enthusiastically, I appreciate you giving us the green light and the resources to determine exactly what happened in our warehousing unit. That's very generous of the company, particularly given that we've already been able to learn that the crate in question was sent to Iona from a company address. We're quite anxious to discover who within the company may have been so cavalier as to send a hazardous shipment through to us without proper labeling and documentation. We all want to ensure the guilty parties are held responsible. I suppose that's where you come in. She is completely taken by surprise. Her eyelids flutter a bit as she tries to formulate a response, but I've made my point, so I stand and walk purposefully to the office door. I believe we're done here, I say before she can reply. I'll submit the team report to you once our investigation is complete, and you can add in any measures the company plans to take to ensure this sort of thing never happens again. We'll then make the report public. I do hope we'll be able to wrap this up quickly. Good day, Chief March. I turn on my heel and walk out the door. As I stride down the hallway, I hear her call out, wait, but I don't stop. If Fallon March wants to have any input or control any part of this investigation, she's going to need to do more than just shout after me. She's going to have to come see me, sans firearm, and give me some answers. Before I call the team together, I tell Arden about my dramatic exchange with the security chief. Despite his long employment with the company, or perhaps because of it, he finds March's apparent lack of interest or focus puzzling. I think it supports my theory that the company settled upon a narrative before sending her to Iona and never had any intention of deviating from it by seeking out facts. It's bumpkinism, I assert. They don't understand that we're intelligent, educated, thoughtful people out here. The company hierarchy thinks independent planets are populated by a bunch of dull-witted bumpkins driven by some kind of radical ideology. I'm guessing once they passed off the idea of team formation to Iona, they never expected any sort of challenge to their authority or any real investigative capabilities. Arden's eyebrows draw together as he ponders this. That still doesn't ring true to me, he says. The company has had a long relationship with Iona. It comes here because it knows it can expect a high level of expertise. They understand what kind of people are here. Well, maybe the company execs who actually deal with this understand, I suggest, but is it possible it's not widely known otherwise? March hasn't been in her position very long. Could she just be uninformed? Yeah, that doesn't sound like her, Arden explains. She has a reputation for being extremely thorough, very prepared, and highly organized. And the conversation you had with her suggests she was none of those things. Was she known for being heavily armed, I ask? I am admittedly still a bit shaken by that aspect of our meeting. Arden's expression is somber. I honestly don't know what to make of that, he says. It's a complex job, but it's not known as an exceptionally dangerous or high-profile one. Tactical security, sure. Sure. In that case, the whole job is about firepower, but operations security is more about documentation and processes, contracts, compliance, safety protocols. I've never known of any operations security chief who was attacked or threatened. But then again, it's not my area of expertise. What is your area of expertise? I ask suddenly. What do you actually do? Arden gives me a curious look. We talked about this, he says. Materials transport? Pilot? Space pirate? We talked about what you did in the recent past. We haven't talked about what you were doing when you left Homeworld, and we haven't talked about what you're doing here now. I'm your warehousing leader, Arden says blankly. We didn't need a warehousing leader. We'd never had one before. Nothing changed to make us need one, yet here you are. I was assigned this post. That's all I can say. You're still working for the company, aren't you, Arden? Still on the payroll? You know perfectly well the company doesn't control Iona's human resources. No, it doesn't. But this warehousing position isn't an Ionian position. It's a company position that happens to be on Iona, isn't it? If we go down to HR right now and look at their logs, we'll see Iona's being reimbursed for your expenses by the company, won't we? Silence. After a moment, Arden takes my hand. I wish I could tell you everything, he says, his voice low and steady. He looks into my eyes with a pleading expression. There is more going on here than you imagine. What you see, what you've experienced, is only the tip of the sand dune. I shouldn't even tell you that you're on the right track, although you already know that you are. And I can't go into more detail now. Hopefully soon, but not now. I hate to do this, but I have to ask you to let me keep this private for now and trust me anyway. Can you, Faith? After all we've been through, and for your own safety... I look at him for a long moment, moved by the mix of anxiety, sadness, and hope written on his features, but still feeling the niggling irritation of his secrets. So many secrets. I finally say, you left for my own safety once before and kept me in the dark for almost a decade. I don't want that happening again. If it comes down to a fight, any kind of fight, this time we fight together. At last, his face relaxes. He clasps my hand in a gesture of solidarity. We fight together, he says. Hey, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying Nothing Larger Than These Stars. Check back next week for a new episode. Follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing.